1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity in idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. So thankful that you're here with us today. Uh, my name is Tyler Thompson. I am one of the four pastors here. You heard Pastor Trey a moment ago, and Pastor Tyler James will give our benediction today. Uh, Pastor Frank Switzer is actually in his second and last week of camp this week, and so he will actually be back in town uh, later on this week. So he's looking forward to connecting with you all uh, as soon as possible when he returns as well. Uh, we are in 1 Samuel 15 today. This is actually the last message uh, from the life of Saul. We're going to start with the life of David next week. Um, funny enough, uh, Saul actually continues to pester David through the beginning of David's life. Uh, he lifts him up and also pesters him at the same time, to put it mildly. Uh, but this is our last message on Saul himself, and we're looking at 1 Samuel 15 this morning. I want to let you know also that we do have baptisms today in between the services. Uh, if you've not been baptized, and that's something that you would like to do, uh, please grab one of our pastors, me or Tyler or Trey, and, and let us know that that's something you're interested in, and we'd love to uh, make that be possible for you today in between the services. We have three that are already uh, lined up to be baptized and super excited for them today and celebrating that. So make sure not to miss that on the patio just after our first service here. We'll enjoy that together. Uh, this passage was actually a difficult passage for me uh, this, this week uh, and, and the previous week studying the passage, uh, mainly because there's some really brutal content in it. Um, when I preached four weeks ago, we read out of the Lego brick Bible and we kept it very G-rated. Uh, this passage is not G-rated, and so I just want to put that out there for you right at the beginning, that, that it's a difficult passage and there were many things in it that were, that were hard for me to, to process. Um, and yet, we do believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for us in correcting and training, rebuking, training in righteousness. Um, I think I said training twice because I need a lot of training. Um, God, God uses this Scripture for our benefit and for His glory, uh, even, even though it's difficult for us to process. So I'm thankful to be able to share this, this passage with you this morning. How many of you have ever received one of those uh, we regret to inform you letters in your life? None of you have ever been rejected? Oh, if you, now the hands are going up. Okay, very good. I thought for a minute it was just me, that I was, all the we regret to inform you letters were going to my house. Um, I'm, I'm glad I'm not alone. Uh, these are difficult letters to receive, and they're difficult for a number of reasons, but the foremost of them probably being that it indicates that another individual or a group of individuals have chosen something else over you or somebody else over you. And we don't really like that very much. We feel like that that's actually a slight against us. It's unfair. We, we think clearly they've gotten it wrong and we're the best person for this particular position or this opportunity. Uh, but a we regret to inform you letter uh, indicates to us that somebody else or something else has been chosen over us, that there's a preference. 
And I think in our world today, that's something that's actually kind of difficult for us to accept, that one thing might somehow be better than another thing. Um, and yet we do this all the time. We do this all day long, every day in our daily lives when we choose how to spend our time, when we choose uh, where we're going to be, who we're going to spend the time with. Maybe you've chosen uh, to eat a, a wonderful lunch, and, uh, and we know that Torchies is better than Taco Bell, and so maybe you've gone to Torchies. Maybe you've chosen to, to root for a sports team, and you know that the Suns are better than the Lakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that you're, think, yeah. Maybe you're a, a, an animal lover, and you know that black bears are better than brown bears. We do this all the time in our lives, and yet for some reason, this also doesn't sit well with us in other situations. And so we want to actually dig into that this morning as we look at 1 Samuel 15. What kind of preferences are actually uh, good? What kind of uh, judgments over what's best or is good? Uh, what, what, when is that a problem for us, or when is that hypocritical for us? And 1 Samuel 15 tends to open up a lot of those things for us. So let's look right starting at the very first verse, verse 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, just, just note there, right as we're starting, that there is a preference there from God, that, that God has anointed Saul as king over all the number of other people that could be king. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, it got very quiet in this room, and that is because that's a pretty serious stretch of Scripture. This is what didn't sit well with me for over a week and a half as I was prepping for this message, because I don't like the idea of God commanding Saul to do this to this people. And so I had to dig into this and ask the Lord, what, it is it, what is it that's going on here? Many people look at this passage and say, well, was Saul's repentance actually real in this passage? But my primary question as I was preparing for this is, should God repent for what he's doing here? Is there something that is unjust about God in this command that he's giving Saul? Now, I know my theology says that, no, God doesn't make mistakes. He's without error. He's perfect in all his ways. But my heart says, I don't like the idea of God commanding Saul to do this. Anybody else with me? Yeah. About as many of you as have reje received rejection letters. So we're, we're, we're on, on, on course here. And so my question in this was, what is going on when God asks Saul to do this kind of thing? As you dig into the Amalekites a little bit further, you see that the Amalekites weren't exactly blameless. They weren't exactly innocent. In fact, the Amalekites were a very oppressive and brutal people that uh, committed great atrocities against not only the Israelites, but against humanity and against God. And so when you look further into this, it's clear that the Amalekites are the villains of the story. That, that helps a little, 
That helps a little bit. The Amalekites were those that created great, uh, that performed great atrocities against the people of Israel. We understand this when we uh, watch our movies. We, we have heroes and villains in our movies. And so we understand this as we watch, for example, the Jedi beat up on the Sith. We understand that. We understand that when we watch the Avengers beat up on Ultron. We understand this when we watch the heroes of our literature or our movies beating up on the bad guys. That's something that we actually find ourselves cheering for. But it feels very different in the Bible and in, and in real life when this kind of thing is happening. But as we dig into the Amalekites, what we understand is that the Amalekites were very brutal in how they uh, treated people around them. So they, they committed crimes not only against the Israelites, but they created crimes against God and humanity itself. So that helps a little bit. What we find in this passage that God gives preference then to the Israelites for a couple of reasons. We see that God prefers the Israelites over the Amalekites. Now again, that's a statement that is difficult for us. We don't like the idea of God preferring one people group over another. But it's clear here that God shows preference for the Israelites over the Amalekites. And the reasons are this, that the Amalekites are committing atrocities against humanity and against God. That God has a covenant relationship with the Israelites, and notably not with the Amalekites. Now, this is also something that's difficult for us. How could God choose one people group but not choose another? It only takes um, another institution, another covenant relationship in our lives to understand this, though. When I married my wife, Elizabeth, I chose a covenant relationship with Elizabeth. And in doing so, I said yes to Elizabeth, and I said no to all the millions of other women that wanted to marry me. Thank you for laughing because it wasn't millions. <laughs> in the marriage relationship, we say yes to one and we say no to others. And we, in that, commit ourselves to that kind of a relationship. There's a similar thing here with the Israelites and, and God. God has a co covenant relationship with the people of Israel. And in the people of Israel, they will uh, live as a set-apart people, holy unto God, people that will follow in his ways, and people that will um, work out his purposes on the earth. And from this people will come the Savior of the world. And so there's a, that's, that's another reason that the Israelites are uh, in the covenant relationship with God that they have. But the third reason that God prefers the Israelites over the Amalekites is that God knows that the Amalekites will continue to be a problem in the world. And so God wants to actually rectify this problem as soon as possible. Uh, we'll talk a little bit that, about that in a few minutes uh, as well. But God knows that the Amalekites will continue to be a problem for Israel and for the world itself. I was talking with um, some folks uh, this week at our Wednesday night Bible study about this, and uh, one of the folks at our table said, God cares so much about sin that he wants to do what it takes to be able to address it head on. And I think that that's exactly right. In verse 4, it says this, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into Lamb. Now, interesting again, when Saul's picking people for his army, he's showing preference for some people over others. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. 
And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Malachites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. This is helpful for me as well, that Saul's not just indiscriminately going around and killing people, but that he is um, warning the Kenites to, 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 to be gone because the Kenites were not uh, in the command. That's actually something Saul got right here. And the Kenites instead had shown kindness to Israel, and so they're allowed to go away. Recall, if you will, that there is a covenant, part of the covenant relationship with Israel is that God will bless those who bless Israel, and God will curse those who curse Israel. Here's a perfect example of that coming out, is that the Kenites who had blessed Israel are going to be blessed, and the Amalekites who had cursed Israel are going to be cursed. God in, it turns out that the things that God say come to reality. But note as well that there's a preference there that Saul has given preference to the Kenites over the Amalekites. And in verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So up until this point, he's doing pretty well, but now he's taken Agag alive. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. Note here as well that Saul's making a preference call on what calves and sheep and etc. are the good ones. He's going he's to get rid of the bad ones. He's going to hold on to the good ones for himself. He's making a preference call here as well. And we might be tempted to think that Saul has spared Agag because he's a very gracious and merciful person and he's very noble in doing this. But as we see here and further in the scripture, it turns out that he saves Agag and these things for his own personal good. He's not following God here, he's following his greed. That Agag is spared in this way. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to Destruction. Now that word devoted is interesting. It's the second time that, that, uh, that we've seen that in the passage. The devoted word has an idea of offering as a sacrifice to God. That when God commanded Saul to do a certain thing, that they were to devote or to set apart certain things as an offering for the Lord. And this is not uncom uncommon for this period of literature, that there would be some sort of sacrifice given to appease um, a higher power. What's interesting here is that God has uh, commanded Saul to give a sacrifice of these people and these sheep and these oxen to him. Now, my stomach is still turning because I, this, feels, this feels difficult to me. Isn't this loving God one who ought to be saving these people? And I think that question is a legitimate question for us to ask. But we don't understand the whole picture the way that he does. Now, we'll see this a little bit later as we continue our passage. But God, in his wisdom and his discernment, knows the outcomes of all of these actions well in advance to when they happen. And so God will find that he will be sorrowful for what has to happen, but not that he will change his course or his mind in what he does. And so we'll see that here in just a moment as well. 
So Saul reveals his preferences in this passage. Saul prefers certain people to go into the battle. Saul prefers the Kenites over the Amalekites. And Saul prefers his own desire over what God has commanded. How many of you ever have trouble with that? Yes, we're, we're getting more honest as the service goes on. I love it. We oftentimes will want to pursue our own desires over what God has commanded, that we make that kind of a preference call as well. It's called disobedience. It's called not obeying God for what he's asked us to do. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and he said, I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, this one stuck with me this week as well. What does it mean that God regrets? Did God change his mind? Did he think that he made a mistake? Did he, was he a hypocrite in what he did before? There's all kinds of questions here. I looked into the word regret, and it actually looks like there's only one other place in Scripture that this word is used of God in this way. Do you remember where it is? Some of you will know. It's in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, in Noah's day, the people are so sinful that God says that he regrets that he has made humanity. Whoa. That's pretty harsh. Now, if God means that he made a mistake, then we're all mistakes. And I don't choose to believe that interpretation. If God means that he uh, wishes he had done something different, then we wouldn't be seeing the history play out the way that it does. But this word regret here means that God has sorrow for something that has happened. He knew anyway that it would happen, but he has sorrow that it had to be that way. Now, we understand this going back to our original uh, idea of the we regret, regret to inform you letters. When you get a we regret to inform you letter, they're not saying, well, we might change our mind about this, and maybe you will be the right person. No, they're saying, you're not the right person, and we're sorry that you're not the right person. It's showing sorrow for the fact that a choice has to be made this way. God's regret is more similar to that, that he knows what will happen in advance, but he also knows that there are certain things that must happen because he's God. A good example of this that we will get to at one point is that Christ knows the pain he will face going into the cross. And in the garden, he has sorrow, great sorrow for what must take place. God understands regret this way. And later on, we'll see that the regret that humanity has is not like this because the regret that humanity has is not based on that foreknowledge that God has. And so God says, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he's not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Man, I just kept on getting caught up on each of these individual verses, that Samuel was angry about this. And I thought to myself, why would Samuel be angry about this? He's the prophet of the Lord. He's charged with carrying out the duties and the words of God, why would Samuel be angry? Samuel is angry here because he's gone through a whole lot to, to anoint Saul as king. He's already been through a ton of stuff. And if you've ever been in a situation where you've built something, progressed over and over again, you spend a ton of time on it, and it just doesn't go the way that you want it to go, 
You're angry because you've put a lot into this. Saul has put a ton, Samuel has put a lot into the anointing of Saul, and he is, he is not understanding why God would now change his mind. He thinks God is changing his mind. But if you recall, God in the first place didn't want Saul as king. Do you recall this? God didn't think that Israel needed a king. Israel demanded this of God, and God accommodated, accommodated Israel because of his great love for the people. There are times that God does accommodate, but in his wisdom, there are times also that he must say no, and this is one of those times. Samuel is disappointed, he's frustrated, he's angry, and he knows there's a lot more work for him coming up, a ton. And so Samuel cries to the Lord all night. And in verse 12, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came from Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. This is amazing that Saul's disobeying disobeying God and yet has the gall to set up a monument for himself in the process. Now before we judge Saul too harshly here, I think there are times that we do this ourselves, where we've disobeyed the Lord on something, yet we're very proud of ourselves for what we're doing. And Saul is exhibiting this for us, that we might take from it some example. Uh, Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Nothing to see here, all is good. And verse 14, and Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Did you guys think the Bible can't be funny? I mean, this is hilarious to me. What did that fox say? Samuel is saying, what is that sheep bleeding in my ear? What is it that I'm hearing right here behind you? Now, this is fascinating to me because in our literature, we oftentimes have this kind of a thing happened. I think of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, where there's this crime committed, and yet the heart beats out from beneath the floorboards. I think of uh, Dostoevsky's Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, where uh, the the perfect uh, crime has been committed, and yet the, the, the conscience just won't let it sit. Eventually, God's truth is going to find out one way or another. And here it was the bleeding of the sheep, that Samuel hears the bleeding of the sheep and knows that Saul's actions have been those of disobedience. Verse 15, Saul said, they have, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Those people over there did it. It was them. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. See, Samuel already knows what's going on. And he said to him, speak. Samuel won't hear any more at this point. We understand here that Samuel is giving himself the opportunity as a prophet to to confront Saul. But before that, the scripture shows us the the contrast between Saul's obedience or disobedience and Samuel's obedience. The contrast is this. Samuel prefers what God has commanded over his own desires. 
even though Samuel has his own work cut out for him and he's been working very hard on a certain thing and he's frustrated and he's angry, Samuel still obeys the Lord. Saul prefers to set up a monument for himself rather than God. Pretty clear contrast there. Saul prefers to tell his version of the story and Samuel prefers not to hear any more of Saul's scubula. If you don't know what scubula is, it's a four-letter word that Paul uses in, in Philippians. Samuel would not like to hear any more of this and says, stop, let me tell you what the Lord says. It's an important thing. There are times when a prophet of the Lord has to say, I'm not going to hear any more of your lies. And Samuel is doing this with Saul in this moment. A couple of things just to note here. Uh, One is that Saul obeyed the Lord as long as it was profitable for him. He obeyed the Lord to a point until he was going to have to take a hit. And then that obedience stopped. And I think we can find that there are times in our lives where we fall victim to that same kind of mentality. I will obey the Lord as long as it is convenient for me. And as soon as it gets tough, I'm out. And secondly, by contrast, Samuel obeys the Lord even though it is already inconvenient for him. This kind of obedience is what the Lord is asking for. Full obedience, immediate obedience, joyful obedience. And sometimes that's difficult for us. Verse 17, Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you. Over king over Israel. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of debate about what that uh, you are little in your own eyes means. Some people translate the, that phrase slightly differently. Some scholars think that it means that Saul actually didn't understand how important he was and how important his actions were. That's helpful for us to think through because there are times that we think like just the littlest thing, it doesn't matter if I do this thing that's against what God wants. Samuel, in this, in this line of thinking, is raising Saul's attention to the fact that there are not any insignificant actions, but that any of our actions are actually have huge ramifications in our lives with the Lord. Another set of scholars is taking this to believe uh, that Saul actually used to think he was small, small time, but now Saul thinks he's big time. That, that, that now Saul has a, has a, a bigger head than what, than what he should have. Also helpful for us, and you can determine which one of, you, which one of those things is helpful for you. Uh, the, the, the idea of Saul being too big in his own eyes uh, is something that we oftentimes wrestle with in this, Lord, where, in this life where we think that the, the Lord actually revolves around us rather than us following the Lord. So, so Samuel's going to let Saul know that he has to have an appropriate view of who he is in relationship to God, Right? And there are some in this room who might think that they are too small, some in this room that think they might be too big. God wants us to have an appropriate view of who we are in relationship to who God is. Samuel's also going to remind Saul that he's on a mission. Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. So Samuel wants to remind Saul that the mission that he's on. And from time to time, we need that reminder as well. People of God, you are on a mission. You are a royal priesthood. You are chosen by by God to be the church for his purposes. There's a mission that we're on that we actually need to be reminded of from time to time. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce 
on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This pouncing is important because it reveals, again, the motivation of Saul's heart. Saul was a greedy man who wanted to pounce on something he could get, ill-gotten gain. Samuel, in his role of prophet, he confronts Saul's disobedience here. Um, Samuel prefers that Saul understand his position and his mission. Samuel prefers that Saul obey God completely, not part of the way. And Samuel prefers that Saul not give in to his greed. Verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. He's still clinging to the fact that he's done the, the command of the Lord. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did this thing. I went on the mission. I did this, 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 and this. Verse 21, but the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. There's a thing that Saul's doing here where he is twisting the words of God ever so slightly to make his own reality. And it actually harkens back to what happened in the garden as the serpent said, did God really say this? Didn't God say this? And I think Samuel is actually wrestling with Saul here because Saul is interpreting his own reality based on twisting the words of God. Tim Chester has a great point here. He says, like Saul, we can all make all sorts of excuses for our partial obedience. And these are five ways that Saul has done this and that we oftentimes do as well. You might resonate with any, any number of these. <clears throat> Number one, Saul says, look what I have done. <laughs> That's one excuse. I understand that you're upset with me for not doing this, but look what I have done. Anybody ever use that one? We're back to being dishonest again, but it's okay. <laughs> Number two, everyone else does it, so I might as well do it too. That's one of those age-old ones. Number three, it seemed like the sensible thing to do. It was just practical. It worked out that way. That's just how it happened. Number four, I did it for God. <laughs> Somehow I thought I knew better what God wanted than God did. Number five, I was afraid of the other people because they all were cooler than me and they outvoted me. And I just wanted to go along with the crowd. This is some excuses that Saul is using here, and, and they're, they're actually there in the verses. Um, and we oftentimes make these kinds of excuses as well to justify our partial obedience to the Lord. Now, this is an interesting thing that Jesus will bring attention to in Matthew 7 when he says, many, many, will, many will say in that name, uh, we prophesied in your name, and, and we did all of these things. We cast out demons in your name, and, and, and Christ says there, I never knew you. Depart from me. That we can, we can offer all the things in the world to God, but that we, in the process of doing so, we can actually be disobedient still. And that's what this uh, is happening here with Saul. We know that Saul was motivated by his greed and not by following the Lord. Verse 22, and this sets up the crux of this passage. Verse 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And if you remember one thing this, this day, note that this obedience is better than sacrifice. Modeled perfectly in Christ, and we'll see that towards the end of this message. But in our daily lives, what the Lord asks of us is not more stuff. It's not more 
fabrication about all the things that we've done. It's this obedience. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. God doesn't need any more rams fat. He's got it all. He's got all the rams fat he needs. What he wants is the obedience that we have to offer. For rebellion, verse 23, for rebellion is the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Those are some pretty heavy charges there. That as we rebel against God, we may as well be participating in divination, idolatry, iniquity. These are sinful things to rebel against the Lord. This disobedience, even this partial obedience that Samuel, that Saul has, has done and Samuel is calling out. That these charges are a real thing. We are either following the Lord our God or we're not. And God knows the difference. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Again, that, the word of the Lord there is something not that we just hear, but that we may internalize and we live out and we attempt to make fulfilled in our lives through the power of God's spirit. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Now, this is so, so interesting because Saul, this is where people say, is this a real repentance? Saul says, please pardon my sin. Let me come back and, and be with the Lord again. Uh, the reason people question this is not only this moment in this text, but literally for the next however many chapters, he's trying to kill David. And so his, his, his repentance here might not be so much that he's actually sorry, but he's sorry that he got caught. And if you understand that concept, there are times in our lives that that happens for us as well. I remember driving back from, uh, from California to Phoenix one day uh, when I was in college. Uh, I think I was... I was something like 19 years old and coming back from college just for spring break. And I had a couple of students in the car and I'm driving through uh, past Indio and cruising down this one hill and just, just cooking. And I got pulled over by a police officer. Police officer pulls me over. I'm really embarrassed uh, with my friends in the car. But the cop comes up and he says, uh, you got you speeding. And I said, officer, I'm really sorry. And the officer said, are you sorry that you were speeding or are you sorry that you got caught? And I think that that's a legit question for us. Oftentimes, we're not really sorry that we did something. We're just sorry that we got caught. This is the case for Saul here, likely based on what we see going on with the rest of his life, that he is sorry that he has got caught. Verse 27, oh, uh, Saul, uh, Samuel responds to Saul in 26 and says, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. It's too late. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. So, so Saul's getting aggressive here. Saul's getting aggressive here. And, and, the robe, uh, and Samuel's robe tore, tears. This becomes a symbol in verse 28. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That's nuts. That Samuel would say to Saul, this king who is coming is better than you. God's showing his preference here for David over Saul. Now that doesn't sit well with us either. But we understand that David is not 
better than Saul because he, of, of uh, sort of any character traits that we might look, like, look at. And we'll, we'll see this next, next week in 1 Samuel 16. It's not because he's particularly handsome. It's not because of his great skill. But it's because God has chosen David to be the king from whom the lineage of Christ would, would take place. So David has a man, David is a man who is after God's own heart. And this is obedience. What that phrase means, a man after God's own heart, it means that David's will is aligned with God's will. Now, as you will see in the life of David, David doesn't do that perfectly either. But this obedience is what God's after. And so God has said, there is your neighbor who's better than you and he's going to get the kingdom. And we'll see in the life of David more fruit of that. God's preferences here are, are established. God prefers obedience to sacrifice. God prefers listening to ram fat. God prefers David to Saul. He is better than you. Verse 29, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Hold on. Didn't God in verse 10 just say that he has regret? It was like a few minutes ago. Did you guys remember? God said in verse 10 that he regrets making Saul king. Here in 29, it says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Well, what's going on there? It's a good thing that we have some Hebrew scholars looking at the Hebrew words that are happening. The Hebrew is tense. is very different in this verse than it was in verse 10. Well, that's good. The root word is the same, that God has sorrow over something that takes place. Here, the, the, the Hebrew tense is different that notes condition without knowledge, okay? It notes that we as humanity, we don't have the foreknowledge that God has. We don't know what's going to happen. We're, we, we're just, we just regret that things turned out poorly. God knows that there's nothing outside of his control, even the things that are difficult for us. So the connotation here is that God doesn't have regret the way that humanity understands regret. We hear regret as, man, I really wish it could be different. Man, I really wish that I had not made that mistake. Man, I really wish that I hadn't gone that direction. God's regret is, with full knowledge, of what will come in the future, understanding that even though the path is difficult, there are some things that must take place. And God is fully capable of showing sorrow for something that in his wisdom he can actually still accomplish. And this is what God is doing in this passage. So God's preferences get established here. And in verse 32, Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Man, Agag is not reading the room. <laughs> Agag says, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, verse 33, this is one of the all-time digs in Scripture. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. You get what he's saying there? Your mother is going to be childless. I think Agag has an understanding of what's happening now. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. 
Now, this is hardcore. I would feel so much more upset about this if verse 32 didn't happen. 32, Samuel is saying, or in 33, Samuel is saying, your sword has made other women childless. So there's a justice issue here. Agag has been killing the kids of other women. And Samuel is saying, just like you've done that, your mom will also be childless. There's a justice thing happening here. Now, this is one, this is, this is one of the more difficult things for our contemporary culture to read because we read it with our contemporary minds and we don't read it with our Hebrew ancient world minds. But let me give you an example that was helpful for me actually this week. This week we went over to some friend's house for dinner. Our family in theirs, it was really great. Hadn't seen them for a while. Turned out that they had a bunch of chickens in their backyard and they're raising a bunch of chickens and uh, which is kind of fun for our kids, and also uh, uh, they, they get eggs and all of that, so it's a great little situation. Uh, I guess a, a while back, they, they got some new chickens that they were trying to introduce to the, to the, the crowd of chickens or the crop of chickens. I don't know what a group of chickens is called. Okay, yeah, good. Um, and the next day, they noticed that a bunch of the chickens like were bleeding the next morning. Like they just they they had little pockets of blood, and the the feathers were were being taken out. And all of a sudden, there's these featherless chickens running around, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And so the next day, same thing happens, and they they figure, okay, we better get to the bottom of what's going on with our chickens. And so they went out and they were watching what was happening. And apparently, there was this one little baby demon chicken. <laughs> That was, that was running around and pecking all the rest of the chickens and taking the feathers out and causing them to bleed. And like one, some of the other chickens were like close to dying. And so the family made this very difficult decision. What are we going to do with this chicken? This chicken is making other chicks childless. What are we going to do with this chicken? And they decided after like a lot of regret that they had to kill this chicken. And so they did. They killed the chicken, and, and the mom is crying, and the kids are crying, and the dad wasn't crying because men don't cry. But they were super, super, super sad about this, but they had to do it because this chicken was messing with the rest of the group and was going to kill the rest of the chickens. That helped me. I'm so thankful to the Lord, right? Because I'm wrestling all week long, and then we go to this dinner, and then there's the demon baby chicken. And it all makes sense to me. Agag is the demon baby chicken. And there are times when you just have to take out the demon baby chicken. Now, God wanted Agag out of the picture because of what Agag and his descendants would be doing for the, for the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, I mentioned earlier that Esther, in Esther chapter 3, the villain in Esther chapter 3, his name is Haman. And Haman is called Haman, Haman the Agagite. In other words, the descendant of Agag. So God knows that leaving this around is going to mess with things for generations. And, and, and the Lord understands that there are times you just have to take out the demon baby chicken. 
Now, it's important to note that there is regret in this because God is not willy-nilly just running around with this kind of retribution. But this, this, this word regret for the Lord shows his human, his, his human um, emotion. Now, he doesn't have emotions like humans do, although when Christ comes and is in the flesh, we see that Christ, Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible for you kids who want to memorize something. Jesus wept that God has emotion in the way that we might understand his emotion. And that the Father, God the Father, we see that there's emotion for God the Father as well. That the Father, the Son, the Spirit, that God has emotion. And it's why we experience emotion, because we're made in his image. And yet, our emotion is so much different than his. We, we uh, obey and fall short in our obedience all of the time. And God's grace is better. So Samuel's sacrifice was better than Saul's because it was done despite his preferences and his emotions. Even in the midst of his, um, uh, his frustration, his anger, he still obeyed God. May we be like Samuel in that. Samuel's sacrifice was better because it cost him something personally. And later in the life of David, David will say, I'm not going to do something that doesn't cost me something. I'm not going to sacrifice to the Lord something that doesn't cost me something. This is a theme. And Samuel's sacrifice is better because it's done by faith and obedience to the Lord. Now, what do we take away from this? A few things that I'd like to just help us land on. One is this, that God's ways are higher than our ways. That he knows better than we do. And Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is looking for people to turn back to him with obedience. And he's ready to have compassion on us. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is helpful for us because when we talk about preference, we need to understand that God's preference is ultimate over creation. That it supersedes my preference and your preference. And we can argue all that we want about whose preference is right, but God's preference supersedes all of those. And his ways are higher than ours. Second, God does show that there is preference of sacrifice. In, ver in Genesis 4, we see this with Abel, Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also bought, brought uh, the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, why was that? It was because, was it because specifically of the ram's fat? Well, no, we know from our passage that it's not because of the ram's fat. It's because Abel's offering was done in, in obedience and in faith. And we see that later in Hebrews 11 as well. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Do we want to give gifts to God? Yes. Do we want to make sacrifices? Yes. But out of obedience and faith. Finally, God prefers Christ's sacrifice to ours. Hebrews 9 says this as well. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice 
of himself. And we can look at that passage sometime in the future, but Christ's sacrifice was perfect once for all. That it's because of his perfect sacrifice that God accepts any of our sacrifices today. Any of the things that we offer him today are only received by the Lord because of what the work of Christ has done on the cross. And he did this because he has love and preference for us. Romans 5, 8 and through 10 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. May we receive Christ's perfect sacrifice today because of his great love and preference for us. And may he be glorified in us, his church. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word and the richness of what is there. God, we're so so glad that you have given us the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Lord, though we don't always understand, though your, work, your ways are higher than our ways, help us to understand that, your, that obedience to you is desired more than sacrifice. So God, I pray that you would give each one of us this heart of obedience that we might be able to follow you in such a way that would bring glory to you. And God, this would be good for each one. I pray for your blessing for each one in this room. God, if there's anyone who has not made the commitment to be a follower of Jesus, I pray that they would do that even now. Lord, that we would rely on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that you might receive from us our obedience and the offerings of faith. God, I pray as we take communion now, that we would, we would rest on this fact that your sacrifice has been made once for all, that we don't need to... Uh, that we don't need to continue to offer sacrifices uh, in order to be saved, that we don't need to continue to give you things, Lord, that instead that we would rely on this faith in Christ and the perfect sacrifice that he's made. So God, as we take this bread and this cup, I pray that you would, Lord, bless it, that you would uh, allow for us to reflect on the fact that it is a a reflection of your body and your blood given for us, that we might have this new life in Christ. And would you be glorified in us, your church? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, we'll take communion at this time. You can come down the center aisle one row at a time. And there will be those that will be serving at the right and the left. There will also be those that will be praying on the sides. We'd love to pray for you. And let us know if we can encourage you in some way. May God bless you in our response.
Amen. This was great to worship and learn from God's word with you all. Uh, we're doing baptisms right after this on the patio. So we'd love to have you right after the service join us out there and celebrate God's gift of new life in the church. Let me send you out with this from Psalm 130, verse 7 through 8. And I'm going to sub out when the Bible talks to O Israel. I'm going to sub that out for O Redemption Arcadia. O Redemption Arcadia, hope in the Lord. For, the, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem you, Redemption Arcadia, from all your iniquities. Praise God for that. Go in peace. Go live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.